Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Change has done Rostam Batmanglish plenty of good. Five years ago, while Vampire Weekend were working on what would become their fourth album, Father of the Bride, he left the group to pursue his own career. He traded East Coast for West, building a home studio in Los Angeles, accumulating production credits for alt-pop titans like Haim, Claro, and Licky Lee, and releasing an album of his own, Half Light, in 2017. In the process, he gradually untethered his own sound from the Baroque rigidity of his classical training and drifted toward janglier pop. His second album, Change Phobia, isn't so much an arrival as it is an assertion of perpetual motion, a collection of road-bound vignettes that attest to the kind of world we can build if we embrace what we often fear the most. Last month, Batmanglish sat down with the fader's Salvatore Mackie, to talk about the techniques and conversations that shaped the album into his loosest and liveliest yet. Rostam, thank you so much for being with me today. It's so nice to sit out in a park in California and just talk. Yeah. Six feet away from each other. Right. Much more hopeful circumstances than last March at Sarge's Deli when the mood was a little different. (laughs) That's true. That may have been where I got COVID. Can you explain a little bit more about like what that so, time was like? So Haim asked me to perform the steps with them on Jimmy Fallon. I said yes, because it's fun when you, you, know, you help write a song, you help produce a song, and then occasionally an artist will be like, hey, would you wanna come do a special version of this live? It's fun to be able to say yes. And so we went to New York and The mood was really funny at Jimmy Fallon. Like people were saying that like whoever was the guest the following day had come down with some symptoms. So they were canceling. And at the time it was completely unheard of that late night TV would just end tomorrow, which it did (laughs) essentially. Cause this was March 10th of 2020. Right. It, It was that era where no one knew exactly what was gonna happen next yeah so they actually asked us to do two songs which was fun because they got to do summer girl in addition to the steps and the reason they asked us to is because they were like we're worried that we won't be able to get people back in here and they were right (laughs) (laughs) the next day we did this like deli performance following that i went with heim to dc and we also did a deli show there and it seemed like things were starting to get a little dark after the DC performance, but flying back from DC to LA, I came down with a fever. And when I got to LA, I subsequently quarantined myself and I didn't see anybody for 10 days and spent like four days sleeping all day and all night. And, uh, a few weeks after that, a friend of mine was like, you can get tested for antibodies. And I was like, what? And I went, the next day after he told me, I went and I got tested and I tested positive for antibodies. And I had about 10 friends who went to the exact same clinic that day because they were, they were like, I know I had it. I know I had it. And all of them tested negative for antibodies. So I was the only one who thought they had COVID of my friends and actually did have COVID. Shit. Yeah, it was an interesting time for me because I was kind of alone and I was able to work on on music and i did write one song from my record while i had 
while, while I still had the fever from COVID. Right. I was wondering about that. <laughs> How did you manage to focus enough, like through a fever to... Well, I had no idea. You know, it was like, I think it was like the third or fourth day of the fever. So I was, I had literally done nothing except sleep and Postmates, like ramen, basically. <laughs> and I eventually got sort of stir crazy. And I was like, you can go up to the studio. You can like, you know, just kill some time before you go back to sleeping all day and all night. And so I started working on something and I didn't think it would be for my record. Cause, and I guess like lyrically, these kids we knew, which is the song that I wrote at, at that time, it's a little different. And I was like, this doesn't fit the record. This isn't for the record. And maybe having that feeling actually helped me write the song because I felt like the pressure was off. I was like, you have a fever, you probably have COVID and whatever you're writing isn't going to be on your album. But then, you know, flash forward, it's the first song. Do you remember like what triggered that song? Like what was the the image that kind of sparked it? I think, do you, do you follow Greta, Greta Thurn, Thurn, I want to say it right. Thurn, Thurn, Thunberg, Thurn, Thun, I think it's Thunberg, Greta Thunberg. If you follow Greta Thunberg on Instagram, there's like, Thunberg. she often posts stuff like from like, protests that are happening in different parts of the world and I guess in my mind I, I started to see like I started to have these visions of like what's what's the next stage of this because it seems like there's a generation of people who really don't give a fuck about COVID about well COVID is related in my opinion but about climate change there's this entire generation that doesn't care and part of the reason I think they don't care is because they know that they're going to die before the world collapses from climate climate change and and hopefully the world doesn't collapse from climate change and that's kind of the mes message of the song it's like we can fix this we will fix this but i guess the darkest shade of that is we may have to arrest some people for willfully being ne negligent about the effects of chemicals and pollution yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was the, I mean, that's the idea behind having the kids, the kids make the arrests. Yeah, the kids will figure it out, maybe. I guess. These kids we knew for so long, they don't speak like they've been spoken to by governments or emperors. How far along was the record at that point? I would say it was almost all written except for Forerunner and and maybe like the back half of Next Thing. There's a couple songs that I hadn't figured out how, how they would end and there was a bunch of songs where I hadn't figured out the production, but I spent the last like two and a half, three years writing the record. Do you remember like where it begins for you? From the back of a cab and Kinney are two of the oldest beats. And so one of the ways that I make Ross Stem records is that I'll make beats for myself and then I'll just listen to them 
in headphones, in my bedroom, in my car, on walks. And uh, I'll just kind of wait until it feels like I have something I want to say or I have a melody that I want to sing over the beats that I make. And actually, I recently found out that that was partly how Paul Simon wrote Graceland. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, It was fascinating to me to hear that, like that that album was a lot of these tracks that were like pretty much fully composed tracks. And he would walk up and down, I think Central Park West. And he'd, he'd listen to these tracks on headphones and he'd write to that. But that's, yeah, that's kind of been a way that I've written for a long time. But then the song Unfold You, I I can remember the night that that started to come together because I played a show with Nick Hakim in Paris. And after that show, I went and I was like listening to his music on Spotify. And there was one instrumental song that I just started singing over and I recorded a voice memo of it and it became Unfold You. And I used that sample and you know he's credited and it's it's not i didn't steal anything <laughs> i always feel like i have to say that we when, love nick hakeem yes yeah. we love nick hakeem <laughs> and in the music industry people are so or actually it's the people outside of the music industry who are casual music fans i feel like sometimes they're so eager to like accuse you of stealing something and right. it's like no Lou Reed is a songwriter on the song or nick hakeem is a songwriter and he owns part of the master like Stand, stand down. It's okay. Stand down, stands. There's a way to do it properly where, you know, people have approval and people are properly comp- compensated. I, I feel like it's, it's a sad world where you can't make songs out of other songs because that's the history of music, you know? In the 80s, they didn't clear samples. So, like, you could take the drums from a song, put it in your song, and you would you'd be fine and then i i do i think i was talking to someone who worked for the beastie boys management and he was saying like they had to go back and like clear all these samples and now there's no uncleared samples anymore but people would just put out music with with uncleared samples that's wild i didn't know that <laughs> the 80s <laughs> another time that's interesting that a lot of this record was made like in motion be it on a walk or in a car, because that definitely comes through. Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of references to, like literal references to cars and cabs. And I'm curious, was that intentional? Well, I think as someone who lived in New York for 12 years, the setting of a lot of my songs was New York City. Right. And then coming to LA and leaving New York and living in Los Angeles, I feel like in some ways, the inside of the car is kind of like the narrative equivalent of the city street. It's like the, it can be where things take place. I and mean, that's something I like about living in California is that you can get in a car and, and go. I feel like Northern California is its own culture. And going up to SF, it's like you're in another culture all of a sudden. And I love that, just being able to drive and, and go to, Utah or go to Las Vegas, just being able to go anywhere you want. Right. It's interesting that you mention LA versus New York in like the the context of this album because it does sound like LA visually, it like brings LA, but then when the baritone sax comes in, there's something about it that like takes it right back to New York for me. Cool. 
I like that idea. I love the baritone sax. As a former baritone sax player, oh I just, wow, I have like a special. Oh wow, like, this is my first interview with a with a baritone sax player who's heard my record. Yeah. So th- you'll be interested in, in this dilemma that I had, which was when I made the vinyl, I put transcriptions of the sax solos in the booklet, and the one thing that I couldn't decide was if those should be like basically baritone sax music or they should be concert pitch. And I ultimately went with concert pitch just because I feel like <laughs> if you want to sit at a piano and or have a violin and you want to try playing along to the solo, you should be able to probably, as opposed to it's such a niche audience that actually has a baritone sax. <laughs> it really is. But I think those people, if you're a Barry sax player, you're probably pretty skilled in transcribing stuff yourself so you could probably read concert pitch but i don't know maybe not yeah because dissonance is something that i I was also interested in on this record i was like you don't do like my criticism for myself is that i'm too consonant in the music that i make i always want to try to push myself to be more dissonant right every record i've made i partly made in my home studio because i've always had a place to record whether it was in an apartment in greenpoint in Brooklyn Heights, Dumbo, Echo Park. I've always had a spot that had a studio and that's where I've, you know, I've made every record I've been part of, you know. This album, I knew I would use my home studio and I wanted to add to that. So I started booking some time at this studio called Vox that I really loved. And in the past, I always used Vox with a very specific purpose, which was mostly to record drums. On this record, I was like, what if you try using Vox to start ideas and see what happens? And I should actually credit Emily Lazar. She's been my mastering engineer since I had a career making music. And I've made nine albums with her. It's crazy to think about. And she was someone who was like, yeah, have you ever tried getting like people together in a studio and and using that as like a creative tool? And I didn't fully do that on this record, but I did sometimes. You dabbled? I dabbled in it. Like there are songs where like the piano and the drums are recorded at the same time live. And, you know, there was a song that didn't make the record that was just me and Henry, the sax player, just us sitting down and improvising at the same time. And... That was one of the first things I finished for the album. And it, it was on an early version of the album, but it didn't make it. But I, could, I guess I could release that anytime I want now. I want to hear that. I think it's pretty good, but yeah. it didn't make the cut. It's okay, to, it's okay if so, some things don't make the cut. Yeah, totally. I guess I just thought of Home when I saw the imagery for the album. You know, like the, the cover photo, something about like watching the world change from your home, I guess, feels more... Not to d- jump back into that, like, COVID conversation, but... I'm worried that people will see my album as, like, a response to COVID, even though most of it was written before COVID. And I don't think anything, anything in the album is about COVID. Right. And the, the concept of change phobia was something that I had from years prior. Where did that concept start? It started in a couple different places. It started when I met this guy on a park bench who... who I found myself opening up to him and he said, change is good, go with it. And I'm pretty sure if I, I don't think I've ever said this before, but I'm pretty sure he worked as a doorman 
in uh, a building in Manhattan somewhere. So which park was this at? It wasn't at a park. It was in it was in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. It was at this part. If you know Commercial Street, there's like this kind of kink in the road, and there's like a little bench that's that's right there by the kink. Change phobia in P Town. <laughs> well, change phobia then. That just to pick it up again. That was like something that came a few years later. So that that was a word that I kind of invented. But I was reading a book that was about a certain personality types and how how to deal with them in your life. And one of the things that it said was, if when it's time to make a change, you need to prepare the person that you're making the change. And then the way to prepare them is to let them know about something like. I feel like it's like very specific, like five times in a two week period. And then instead of like giving them the opportunity to weigh in on the change, you need to just make the change and then let them know that you've made the change. And I was thinking about this and, and I was feeling like this is such a strange way to have to deal with somebody in your life. And yet I felt like it was resonant. Like, I, because I feel like we're, we're all, we all struggle to deal with change, no matter who you are. And I think we are all guilty of, of, of sometimes being afraid of, of seeing the world in a, in, from a different perspective. Yeah. But we need, to, we need to be cool with it. Right. And just, or, or not cool with it. I just want to say, we, I think being aware, being aware that, you might, your, that your fear may stem from a fear of change, I think that's important. So that that's why I called the album Change Phobia because I wanted to just have that reminder. Is it just change phobia that makes us scared doing what we should? Was it just Talk to me about Forerunner because I fucking love that song. Oh, I think that's you. my favorite song you've ever made. Thank you so much. It's weird. It kind of stems in from a trip I took to Japan. I heard this song in a shop and it had this very specific palette that stuck in my mind. It had 12-string acoustic guitar and brush drums. And I was like, what is this song? And I've never been able to find it. But my response was to just make my own version of what I imagined the song sounded like. And I have no idea what it actually sounded like anymore. Where were you in Japan? I want to say I was in Daikanyama, which is a neighborhood in Tokyo. But I'm pretty sure it was by a British rock band. I would believe that. Like from the late 80s, early 90s. That's what I would, that's the wheelhouse I would put it in. But I've spent hours on Spotify trying to find what the song was, but I've not been able to. And so I made this track with brush drums and 12 string acoustic guitar in about a day. And then I just, like I said, I, was, I like to make these beats or I feel weird saying the word beat because I think that that can mean it's just drums but it's usually like more built out than that and I just you know drove around 
listening to it and I was like, yeah, this is going to be good if I can finish this. If I can write a song around it, it's going to be good. But but sometimes I think with songwriting, it's just kind of like you have to place your mind in the space and then the usually the lyrics write themselves. Right. If you can get into the right zone, like the right alpha waves or whatever it is. How do you get into a zone when... Well, it, it's hard to get into a zone. Well, because there's this one school of songwriting, which is just like you get in front of a mic and you just start singing gibberish. And from that gibberish, you call together like the melody. And you might, when I say a nugget, it's like you might just sing one random word. And that word in your gibberish vocal performance, that word like kind of makes the whole song come together. Yeah, and it's interesting. In Forerunner, I think that word is actually, it was something that Brad Oberhofer came up with, who I co-wrote the song with, because I was playing it for him in my car, and I had the, this melody idea, and and he thought the word should be take for the beginning of the chorus. like so, th- Or for that part of the chorus where it's like, take off. I, I think I ended up saying take off a shift for me, but I definitely had a version of the song where I sang take off your shirt for me. But then I thought that was too, I guess I thought that was too sexy. I, th- I always thought it was, what is it? Take off a shift for me. I thought it was take off that shit for me. Ooh. And I was like, okay. Wow, I like that way more than my, my shitty lyrics. Wow. <laughs> okay. It's funny because I have my phone right here. I could, I could pop in and look if I have like the unused lyrics for Forerunner still. I'm just going to share it since you love Forerunner. I want to share it. These are some lyrics that didn't make it. We got this Forerunner across I-80. That would be hard to rhyme. (laughs) Packed up fully. (laughs) Out of gas, tires slashed. Ooh. Steamed up the front window. Hot. Forerunner out of state. Long, long gone. I think I ended up saying Forerunner stolen plates. But that was another. <laughs> and then here's just a random one in the, that's, that's, that's jotted down, which is pull over if you need to. <laughs> I don't know how I would have put that in the song. I love it. song to communicate fascinates me what do you think was holding you back from communication i guess that's one of my therapy songs <laughs> which is like a genre of songs that i've written um that are somewhat kind of about therapy and and how it's been enlightening to me i mean th- that song is not like to a therapist or it's not specifically about therapy. I think it's just more about the insight that that therapy can give you. So on a basic level, it's just about being honest with yourself about your emotions. And I think it's really about communicating with yourself 
as much as another person. I don't want to say exactly what was on my mind when I was writing a song because that can evolve and I like there to be a little bit of mystery, but it's, it's kind of what's at the heart of it is this idea that um, if we're honest with ourselves about our emotions, we become better people. Do you feel like this record has kind of brought you to that place or? I think so. I think that's a, that kind of a big theme on the record is, is awareness and being aware of yourself and being aware of what you feel. And so that's like part one. And then part two is then communicating that to like people in your life and, and maybe to the outside world. I haven't even thought of it on those terms, but I did like the idea that it felt, it felt good to me that the chorus of the song was, I was not able to communicate before. And that had multiple layers to it. It's directed at a specific person. It's directed at myself. It's directed at the world at large. Yeah. And there was a part of me that thought of it like, is this like another installment to David Bowie's Major Tom? Like where he's in space and he's very literally saying I was not able to communicate before. And that's not what I think the song is about, but I love that idea. Right. I love that idea that... Ground control to Silver Lake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed. Um, you know, going into this record, is there anything else that, you know, aside from the COVID thing, like, is there anything that you feel like you have to clear up about the record? I think part of the reason that I wanted the record to come out at the beginning of the summer was I never had a record that came out at the beginning of the summer or a record that I was part of that, you know, it was like the top of June. And there's something, there was something appealing about that release timetable. It made me feel like the world might be opening up more. And, and I love the idea of people being able to hear my music in, in a broader context, like with friends in public spaces and hopefully by the top of June that's going to happen. Let the record breathe. Yeah, it's one thing not to be able to play live, but then the idea that people couldn't even gather to hear the music, that that kind of made me sad. So that was part of why I was like I was happy with the June release date. Yeah. The Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. You're going to die twice. You're going to be released twice. Hey. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you taking a minute to catch up. and Cool. Thank you, Sal. That was Rostam in conversation with the faded Salvatore Mackey. Change Phobia is out this Friday, June 4th, via his own Maxor Projects. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow the Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Fader interview. Goodbye until then. <laughs>